0: So let's be honest, um, when was the last time? For those of you who are um, here who have been, you know, Christians for a long time, you believed in Jesus, you're, that's, that's you know part of your identity, that's the core of your identity, when was the last time that you actually shared your faith with somebody who is not a Christian? Um, I can be pretty honest and say, I think for me it's been about two months, but before that, big dry spell. Long time. And it's because I'm acutely aware of the fact that most people probably don't want to talk. You know, there's memes out there, right? Like, you know, it's like the, can I introduce you to my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And people make fun of us because that's kind of been the, kind of the way that evangelism was done. I, but w- what I'd like to do today, because we got Easter coming up. Easter's coming up in like two, three weeks. Um, and I-, I would love it if we were in a place where we could be a little more open and, I don't know if aggressive is the way right word, but be out there with our faith. Um, especially as Easter's coming up. Easter's a great time to invite somebody to come to church, find out what we're all about. You know, resurrection of the dead, that sort of thing. And... In order to get there, I think it's worth. I think it's worth spending a little bit of time seeing how Paul did this. See his strategy, um, because he he was a, a professional evangelist, and we're not going to be probably as good as he is. We got a few people here with some really strong gifts for evangelism. I know Ray is awesome, um, but but for the rest of us, we might need. Might, we can take a few cues. Now it's a long text, so I want to I want to I want to go through it, but but uh, I, I want to highlight not just what happened, but the logic, the strategy behind Paul's ability to share the gospel. So let's take a look. This is Acts 17. Uh, this is when Paul visits uh, the city of Athens in Greece. While Paul was waiting for them, uh, he's waiting for his missionary partners. I believe Timothy uh, is one of them. So he's, they, they're coming, but they're not there yet. And so he's, he's basically just hanging out in Athens. Uh, he's like, he's just walking around. And so while he's there, he's deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, that's uh, Gentiles who believed, in, uh, who believed in Israel's God, and also in the agora, the marketplace, every time with those who happened to be there. And then uh, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. They saw what he was doing, so they start fighting with him. Some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods or divinities. Uh, the word there is—it's uh, not gods; it's uh, it's demons, a daimon. Uh, so, it, in, in the Greek world, that would have been like anything that anything that was above humanity, so divinities. Uh, this was because he's telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They're hearing this. They're like, this is very strange stuff. What's he talking about? So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. That's the law court. It's in the northwestern part of uh, of Athens. You can still go there. It's like a big rock out, outcropping. And you can go and you can see where he was. They take him there kind of like to have like an informal sort of, okay, present your case. What do you think of all this stuff? And so, uh, they, you know, what what is this new teaching that you're presenting? It sounds strange. We'd like to know more. Now, all the Athenians and the non-Athenians living there would spend their time in nothing but telling and hearing new things. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with an inscription to an unknown god. Athenians, you've got so many gods. You have so many idols and gods that you're praying to and thinking about. I even saw one. That's the God that nobody knows about, the unknown God. Well, guess what? I do know this God, and that's who I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul goes on. He says that the God, the unknown God, the one you don't know, is the one who made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in shrines made by human hands. He's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. He himself gives to all mortals life and breathes. And all, and breath and all things. He's got it all. He doesn't need anything from you. He's the one who gives to you from one ancestor, Adam. He made all the nations to inhabit the whole world and he allotted the times of their existence, the boundaries, the places where they would live. Why? Why are you here, Athens? Why are you here, Greece? So that they, you would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we're God's offering, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art, an imagination of of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he's commanding everyone, including you Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and your friends, to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. There's a lot going on here. I don't want to get too caught up in, in, in the in some of the details. I want to be able to move through as much of the text as possible. But I do want us to take some lessons from what Paul's doing. So the first thing, he's deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, idols were, were uh, something that people bought and sold, and they were actually pretty expensive, not unlike going to like a jewelry store. And so there was a lot of there was a lot of commerce that was around little little statues of the gods. And Paul, with well, that deeply distressed. Uh, that, that word is it's the same kind of it's the same word for being uh, uh, rev, having revulsion for something. Like he's almost nauseous as he's looking around and seeing all these gods. There's two reasons for that. One is he's like, you guys are wrong. I know the real God, the one God, the God who is over all. And two, Paul knows that when you start going after false gods, it ends up wrecking your life and the life of everyone around you. And this is weird for us as Americans in the 21st century because we're not, you know, weird and superstitious like ancient people. As humanity has evolved, right? We've progressed. Uh, we don't. We don't. We're not. I mean, honestly, if we look back at ancient people, they were pretty stupid, and I want to show you how dumb they are. So here's here's a couple of the popular idols that were big um, in 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 Paul's day. In the middle there is Zeus. Zeus was the god of the weather. And so he was the one who controlled the climate, um, and and so people who were obsessed with the weather or Earth, they prayed to Zeus. They they were, they prayed to Zeus to either in, to create or to stop climate change, which is ridiculous. No one would do that anymore. We we're, we're way too sophisticated for something like that. To be obsessed with, with, with Earth and pollution and no, that's crazy. It's crazy. On the uh, on the left there, it's his wife Hera. She was the uh, the goddess of um, family, children, and health. Um, and so, if you, there, there were apparently there were, in this really unsophisticated, you know, primitive culture, some people were obsessed with their children. Um, and they and they were the most important thing in their lives. What they obsessed over was making sure that their children uh, grew up and, and were successful and healthy and thrived. Silliness. And so they had they prayed to Hera to make that happen. They also happened to be Bizarre, obsessed with good health, and living as long as possible and not being sick, and so they had a, a god. They they, uh, they prayed to a god to make sure that they would you know be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, on the right there is Apollo. He was the god of science. Um and again, strange in, in the ancient world, people thought that science was super, super important. And so they uh would devote all of their energies to understanding how the world worked, nature, and uh and and, and they thought by doing that they could solve all of their problems. Mind-blowing stuff. He was also the god of art and poetry. And so in the ancient world, uh they, they had they understood some people were obsessed with human emotion, feeling, self-expression. Right, and so they would pray to Apollo to to, to, to have the, the to to understand and explain and and, and expound and, and and push out the things that were deeply inside of them, their identity. A Couple more, I got uh, we got on the left here. Dionysus, my personal favorite. Uh, he's the god of wine. Uh, Dionysus was the god of losing absolute control uh, by by surrendering yourself to uh, substances. Right. Uh, so alcohol and, and and other various things. And he was the God of just losing your mind, going crazy, getting rid of all the other controls. Freedom. He was the God of freedom. He was the God of making sure that nobody has control over me, even me. And next to him is Aphrodite. I can only give you her head because uh, in the ancient world when they carved <laughs> Aphrodite, she was always naked. And so to keep this G-rated, uh, we're just getting her head. She was the goddess of sex. And um, very strange. Ancient people, they, um, they, a lot of them were very, very obsessed with uh, the physical pleasure that comes from sexual encounters. Um, and they celebrated in all of its diversity, all of its forms. Uh, Aphrodite, there, was no, there were no rules. <laughs> it was, it was like, just go for it. In fact, uh, when Aphrodite and Dionysus got together, um, it was very common in the ancient world in Paul's day and in Athens and Greece, to um, to have orgies as a uh, as like a, a way of worshiping. Now, if it's not already obvious, I think that um, one of the things that we should notice is that um, the difference between us and ancient people is that we've cut out the middleman, right? Instead of instead of praying to Zeus, we just Obsess over the weather. Instead of praying to Hera, we simply turn our children into our gods. Instead of praying to Dionysus, we just get throttled and make terrible decisions. Instead of praying to Aphrodite, we simply define ourselves in terms of our sex and gender identities. I didn't put up Mars, the god of war, really the god of nationalism, right? Um, we, we don't need a god of nationalism. America! Some people in our day even make our country um, the point of their worship, identity, and obsession. The bottom line is, is that Paul is going around Athens, and he's seeing all of these things— and he's seeing all of these gods that people put in front of their lives, the things that their lives revolve around. And, and Paul knows that, that not only is that not what you're worshipping a fake god, like not the real god, but also on top of that, what's worse is when you organize and order your life around these things, the things that these gods represent, and, and you displace the real god with them, you end up wrecking yourself and destroying the people around you. Because, as Christians, we call this sin. We go after something that's not God, and as a result, lives get destroyed. And so the first thing Paul does in his evangelism to the people of Athens is he identifies the idols. He recognizes what these people are worshiping. What is it that they're pouring their lives into? Because if he knows that then maybe he's going to have some, some access points as he's beginning to speak to them. We'll see that um, as we look at his speech. But that should bring up some questions for us, right? Like, if you're thinking about sharing your faith with people, you need to know what it is that they are worshiping. Right? And, and the way to know what people are worshiping is to see what's destroying their life. Every sin, when you go after it and you commit yourself to it, it ends up destroying and wrecking you. And so if you're wondering what the idol is in someone's life, look at what they're being destroyed by. Because I guarantee you, whether they know it or not, they're worshipping it. Let's go back to the text. There's some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers... Uh and they say, what does this babbler want? Uh, Luke's playing a joke here. Uh babbler, that word is actually um seed picker. Um and in the ancient world there was a seed picker was like a, a a euphemism for people who would go around and they would like just pick out little different pieces of information and kind of shove them all together to create like you know nonsense type stories. Uh pretty much basically what modern journalism does. So that's kind of what uh they're they're really they're been they're like this this third rate journalists. But then notice at the end what what Luke says. He like just kinda of, By the way, now all the Athenians living there they'd spend their days doing what? Nothing. But telling or hearing something new. So Luke, is playing a little joke on them. They call Paul a third-rate journalist, but they're truly the third-rate journalists. What are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? Epicureans were the ones who went after pleasure. They were basically atheists. They didn't really believe in the gods that much. Stoic philosophers tended to believe that the gods were imminent uh, to the world, like inside of everything. And they were people who had a lot of self-discipline, self-control. They endured. They were strong and manly. That was kind of like their thing. Uh, and so they were. Th- but what's important about them, for Luke's, what Luke's concerned about, is that Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were the elites? They were all rich. They ran the show. They were the ones who had influence, and they were the ones who made sure that the Ath- the Athenians did what they wanted. These are this is the upper crust. These are the Harvard graduates. These are the ones who who are in the State Department, in D.C., the ones who are deciding which films are going to get made in Hollywood. These are the ones in charge of all of the mutual funds in New York City. These are the people who are at the top. What they do, they take Paul to the Areopagus. They're curious. They're like, oh, well, might as well hear something new. That sounds good. Some of you know I have a uh, three-and-a-half-pound chihuahua named Piper. Piper is, I think, 11 years old, maybe 10, maybe 12. I honestly don't remember. My mom knows better. Uh, when we got Piper, sadly, when we got Piper, uh, it was illegal because we were living in an apartment. We were actually running the apartment complex. We were um, coordinators of the apartment complex with a no-pet policy. And so we got the dog, and we, and we shoved her in the back room of the apartment because we were afraid that, that people might hear her barking. As a result, Piper was never properly trained. So she knows basically three things. She knows her name, which is Piper. She knows come, which is like, to her, a mild suggestion that she move towards me. And as she gets older, she just ignores it more and more. She does, if I do this, she will like stop and cower. That's like when Alpha Dog is like, you know, laying down the law. Um, so she, she knows that one. But she, we never really got her trained. And as a result, she's kind of an ornery, mean dog. Like, she hates children. Um, and she tries to bite them and kill them as much as she can. She's only three and a half pounds, so she can't do too much damage. But, I mean, I'm honestly worried. Like, at some point, someone's going to get their finger bit and I'm going to put that dog down. We should have trained her. Then, you know, maybe she's so small. How cool would it be if she could, like, you know, stand up on her hind legs and give me a high five? That would be awesome. And I could probably pull that off if I hired somebody, a trainer. Uh, apparently, dog trainers, they're, they they agree broadly that any dog, no matter how old, even hurt, abused, no matter how ornery, no matter how willful, every dog can be trained. And, the, and every dog is essentially trained the same exact way. Like, you, it, it's basically like, you do a good thing, you get a treat. Do a bad thing, I'm going to look away from you. The, the mean ones will, like, shock the dog. You know that's a thing? There are trainers out there that will, like, shock your dog when, they do, when it does a bad... That sounds terrible to me, but... It's a thing. I learned about it. But they all agree in the basic conditioning of a dog. A dog is a very simple kind of flesh robot. All you have to do is reward what's good, punish what's bad, and any dog will change and adapt and become the way you want the dog to be. This is not true of human beings. If you've ever taught a class, especially with small children, you know that kids are, like, just radically different from each other, right? Like, every child has this completely unique background, this completely unique uh, set of opinions, the way that they feel loved. All of those things are just unique to every child. And so when you're teaching kids, you kind of have to adapt to the students, which is one reason why people get upset about large class size, right, in public schools. Because if you have a large class, then kids aren't getting the individual attention they need. What Paul, what, The reason Luke tells us that there's these Epicurean philosophers, the reason he tells us they go to the Areopagus, the reason he includes those details in the story is because he wants us to realize that Paul is about to say something that is tailored to his audience. He wants us to know these are upper, cru, upper crust, elite, educated people And so the what Paul's gonna tell them is designed for their ears, not for the ears of every other person. Every time you tell the gospel, it needs to be adapted, needs to be like spoken, told in a way that matters to this audience. That's step two, assess your audience. If you're considering thinking about sharing your faith, if you're thinking about bringing your faith to other people, you need to recognize who they are, where they come from, what they're like, the language that they speak, the culture that they're a part of. And if you don't know those things, you're not going to be able to understand what, what their idols are, how those idols are destroying them. You're not, you, not going to get them at all. And chances are you would be talking past them. That brings up, you know, some questions, right? Are you able to relate to the person who needs Jesus? Have you taken into account where they come from, who they are, their family, their backgrounds? Because every single one of those things is going to make a difference. And honestly, I'm going to be less effective in sharing my faith with people that I don't know, that I don't have some kind of understanding where they come. You don't have to be best friends. There's this like... Friendship evangelism. I don't know how well that works. Maybe it does. But at the very least, you need to know who they are, where they're from, so that you can understand how they hear the words that you're saying. And notice that this is exactly what Paul does. He adapts his, his speech to the, 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 the philosophers, the elites, the educated, in just the right way. Let's, let's, let's run through it quickly. Um, first, he says he's going to make a bridge right, between his world and their world. He's like, you've got lots of, lots of gods let me tell you about the God you don't know. And so how does he do it? He starts with some things that are going to be kind of offensive to these people. They're going to be weird, right? So he says, going on, who, uh, this is the God who made the world. He doesn't live in shrines made by human hands. One of the reasons he brings that up is that ancient people thought they could manipulate God, right? Little little idols you can make gods do whatever you want. This is a, the God who comes from one ancestor. The reason he says this, I'll explain in a second. He allotted times and existence and boundaries, to the places where people lived. Greek people and really ancient people in general, they they thought of themselves as like as like a, a, a group of people that went back forever, and they'd always been in like in in contest or conflict with the people around them. What Paul's saying, he's like, no, that's not the case. In fact, you have an ancient ancestor. You, we're all actually one big human family. You may not know that or like that. You're actually, we're all, the, we're all in the same boat there. And not only that, but your, your nation that you love so much, actually God was the one who created that and made that. So on the one hand, he's, he's, he's pushing against some of the philosophies, but then he also, he also reaches out to them, right? He's like, hey, even some of your own poets. He's quoting Epimenides and then Erratus. 3rd uh, century um, Greek philosopher-poets. And, he, and he, so he, he, he reaches across the aisle and he says, not everything you know is wrong, okay? I'm not here to, like, tell you that you're wrong about everything. There are some connections that we can have. But there's connections that are not going to work. I mean, if, if we're in fact God's children, his offspring, then really, could you make a god out of gold, silver, stone, art, human imagination? No way. And then the zinger... Your idols are wrecking you. And you need to repent. Because the judge of righteousness is coming. So Paul has this kind of like in and out where he's like, here's things that you're right about and we can converse on that. Here's some things that honestly you're just ignorant about. You don't know what you're talking about. You have all these ideas, but you're, you're honestly, you just don't. You think you know. And by the way, in the ancient world, the Greeks, they knew about Judaism, right? They were aware that there was Judaism. This isn't like news to them. They've never heard of, it's not that they don't know about. It. But clearly what they know about Judaism is completely wrong. They have a very wrong, distorted, screwed up, misinformation, disinformation view of what Judaism is. This last week, um, Don Lemon, he's a CNN uh, anchor. He, uh, he, so the, the Vatican, our Roman Catholic friends, they, uh, the Vatican Pope Francis, I think he's basically, he's, I'm not sure, but my understanding is that he's relatively liberal as far as, like, theologically and politically liberal as far as popes go. Um, but he, this week, uh, uh, told all the Catholics that we're still not going to bless same-sex unions, Right? So if you're a Catholic priest, you're, you're not allowed to bless or perform a, uh, a gay or lesbian marriage. Now this was a big shocker to people like Don Lemon, because they, uh, they kind of were hoping that this pope would be you know, more liberal than the ones before. And, and they were very upset. And so, so Don Lemon, this week uh, on CNN, he, he literally he, he corrected the pope. He was like, Pope, I don't think you know uh, as much about Jesus as you think you do, because, he says, God, God doesn't judge. Right? God is not in the business of judging things. God is in the business of what, like affirming things. God is in the business of being like, you do you. Don Lemon's an interesting dude. He, um, it's a, per, it's a very, it's personal to him because he's he's gay. He um, he tells a story when he, he he suffered some pretty intense sexual abuse um, from the time he was five or six years old uh, from a male neighbor um, on his street, uh, and it lasted for years. He didn't. Um, come out about it until his thirties, uh, so he, I think currently he 's either engaged or he 's married to his um, to his former partner now husband um, and so th- these issues are definitely personal for don lemon um, but boy this guy doesn 't know anything about Christianity. He doesn't know anything about it. Like, he's, he's completely—he's, like, off the reservation. He thinks he knows stuff about Christianity. He thinks he knows stuff about what we believe about things. But he's just, like—I mean, it's just so far, like, outside of what we actually think about stuff. So it's just, like, oh, my gosh. Like, God doesn't judge—I'm pretty sure that when people murder each other, God's definitely going to judge that. I'm pretty sure that when, when <laughs> you hear Paul's, Paul's gospel? He's like, dude— there is a man who has been appointed to judge righteousness and evil and his day is coming one of the really fascinating parts about our culture is that we've come to a place where no longer are we even post christian we're now like like neo pagan do you do you realize how many people in this world in this country are so far removed from faith that they just they have like a caricature understanding of Who we are and what we think. They really, they've zero zero actual experience of like looking at the Bible, you know, 50, 60 years ago, everyone kind of knew some stuff about the Bible and, but we're in a place now where two, three generations have gone by where people have never stepped foot in church. They're they're completely educated by a, a culture that's obsessed by all the idols that we talked about earlier. They don't have a clue. To them, God is still unknown. You see, what Paul's doing, sure, he he makes connections here, and he says yes and no to this and that, Um, but over all of it, throughout all of it, what Paul's essentially doing is he's saying, you don't know who God is. You think you do? Let me introduce you to who God really is. And I suggest that we are in exactly the same place in this culture right now. We're here to introduce to people a God they have no clue about. They think they know, but they're completely wrong. They're absolutely ignorant. There's an unknown God. They have no idea who Jesus really is. They have no idea what God is really like. They have no idea what the the power of the Spirit is. They have no idea what redemption, forgiveness, all those things look like or act like. They're, They're just totally divorced. And so our job is to first recognize the idols that are destroying them. Number two, assess who they are. Where do they come from? What's their background? And and the last and most important thing is to be like, I know you think you know who God is, but you don't. And I would love for you to find out if you're interested. As Christians, we don't just make stuff up about who God is. We have a Bible that tells us everything we need to know about who God is and what God is like. We have services where we worship and cherish that God, where we learn more about him, where we see what that God is saying to us right now. I would love for you to find out about that God. And you know what? If you would rather go back to this thing that's wrecking your life, okay, that's fine. But let me introduce you to a God you don't really know. I have, um, we're, we're short on time, so I'm going to wrap it up. But uh, at the bottom of your note sheets, if you've got one, um, I have some a, a list of you know, five kind of, I think, types of people that we encounter. Um, and if we could just skip to the one that has the answers. <laughs> um, I think that in general, who we're communicating with and who we're interacting with are people who are burned by church. A lot of people have been to church and they got judged. A lot of people have been to church and they weren't allowed to say the things or think the things that they said or thought. This is not that place. We're a grace church. We believe that the only thing that you need to be a Christian is just to simply believe in Jesus. That's it. And we're not here to, you know, we are here to, to make disciples, and we do want to see uh, revolution and transformation in your life, but you come as you are. And we're not here to make you somebody that you're not. We are, but not till later. Educated ex-Christians, uh, we, we need, if you're dealing with people like this, people who grew up in church and then they, started, they went to college and they were like, wait, that's nonsense. Uh, there's, there's a whole realm of apologetics, of, of ways to answer their questions. Neo-pagans, that's the people who are three, four, five generations removed from any Christian influence in their lives, they think they know who Jesus is. They're like, yeah, Jesus, he's the the bearded guy who's like, uh, you know, just love everybody. Okay, let me introduce you to the real Jesus who took on real problems and came up with real solutions. Other faiths, um, how's that working for you? Uh, (laughs) In fact, in some ways, all of it, it's like, hey, so you've been doing this, is that working great for you? Because if not, and for those who've been uh, wrecked by life, those who've been wrecked by addiction, wrecked by uh, relationships, wrecked um, who are just at the bottom, who are at the, at, the, you know, at the end, turn around. Turn around. There's a better life for you. And it's a life of following the one who can save you. We got Easter coming up. And it's a strange time. I know that uh, there's many of you who are going to be you're at home and you're still going to be uh, at home, and, and I, I get that. Um, but there's also a lot of people who are really hungry to, to get out and to have some hope and to try something different. Figure out what their idols are. Assess where, who they are, where they're coming from, and offer them an, intro, an introduction, an, an opportunity to get to know a God that they don't already know. Let's pray. Gracious God, we um, come before you as as broken people. People who deal with our own idols. People who um, often set you to the side and become obsessed with, with all the things that humans have always been obsessed with. But Lord, let us nevertheless be broken vessels to carry your message out, to invite people into a new life. God, show us what what the people around us are worshiping, our friends, our family, our our coworkers, even our kids, God. What is it that they're worshiping and, and how is it destroying them? Show reveal that to us. Holy Spirit, in your power. Father, in your wisdom, give us your insight. And Lord Jesus, give us your compassion. May we know and care for the people around us and may we have a God they've never met, an unknown God on our lips. A God they think they know, but they really have no idea. A God whose love and whose justice are both infinite, whose mercy is never failing. A God who's committed to his people and never quits. God, may we introduce you the unknown God, to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.